I Cannot Dance, O Lord. Movement 3 of Ecstatic Meditations by Aaron J. Kernis, performed by the Microcosmos Chamber Choir, Luik Pierre conducting. Welcome to Relevant Tones. My name is Seth Bosted, and I have the great good fortune to have composer Aaron J. Kernis today as my guest. Aaron, welcome. Really nice to be here, Seth. You've chosen a really eclectic uh, range of your music to play for us today, and so we're going to feature a lot of things that, uh, some, some jazz, uh, some choral music, music that, that is inspired by Baroque and dance music. How have you been so interested in so many things? Well, I grew up actually listening to a lot of different kinds of music, and especially a lot of college radio, where one hour I'd hear bluegrass, I'd hear the newest uh, pieces of Phil Glass and Steve Reich, then there'd be on to a more hard-hitting, avant-garde new music show than some jazz. And this conversation between styles and influences just was a pretty natural part of what I heard as a teenager. And certainly in there is orchestra music, classical music, early music. But it's true, this selection of pieces is going to seem very disparate and to reflect a lot of different things in my in my life. But yet, as I compose, there are different strands that keep on repeating throughout my life. In a way, I don't see this as eclectic. It's just I go back and forth over and over again, kind of as a one sort of work as a break from the last sort of work. And I need different kinds of stimulation in what I do and how those works follow each other. You said that choral music was a, a big influence early on in your life. Where did you hear choral music, and how has that shaped your music? Well, my first musical experiences were actually in voice lessons as a six-year-old, and after that, violin lessons. But before I went into the school orchestra, I was in choirs from the time I was about oh, 10 or so until the end of high school. So it's really been there. I, some of the first pieces I wrote were choral pieces, and I've always loved scanning poetry, spending time in bookshops, just going, looking for, for things I might want to set. Um, so it's been a part of my work from the very beginning. Also, I had early experiences in synagogue with cantillation and with, with hearing an unaccompanied cantor. And that music also has found its way through my work from time to time and through setting very sacred texts. And the next piece, the second movement of my third symphony, which is called Symphony of Meditations, in fact is based on an English translation of a Hebrew text from the 10th century. And both the movement you just heard, I Cannot Dance, and this movement from the third symphony have a kind of ecstatic quality, are kind of heading toward a whirling, that's in fact the last word that's repeated a hundred times in, in the choral piece, trying to find a physical and a spiritual um, ecstasy through repetition and through building textures. Great. Let's have a listen. This is Movement 2, Meditation on Oneness, from the Third Symphony, Symphony of Meditations by Aaron J. Kernis. We're going to hear the Yale Symphony Orchestra and Glee Club, Amanda Hall Soprano.
All the creatures of earth and heaven, together as one, bear witness in saying, The Lord is one, and one is his name. Text by Spanish poet Solomon Ibn Gabarol from the 11th century, set by composer Aaron J. Kernis in his third symphony, Symphony of Meditations. We heard the second movement, Meditation on Oneness, performed by the Yale Symphony Orchestra and Glee Club. That was Amanda Hall as the soprano soloist. Tell me about studying with Charles Warren versus John Adams. I have had very, uh, very interesting, diverse bunch of teachers, and I studied with John Adams at a very important time when I was about 17 and 18, when my language had not yet been formed. In fact, I, it's hard for me to say that because it's taken many years to see that all these things are part of my world. And so they were both very generous teachers. They confronted what I was doing and asked me a lot of questions about where I was going, questions that I couldn't answer at that time. And Wernin was also, you know, saying, where's this going? And at the time, I was kind of, I was writing very intuitively, just bits and pieces of what I liked without a sense of overall structure. And from my lessons with him, I really began to ask the questions of how to shape music, how to give it a direction and give it some structural integrity. And it was very, very fundamental to the thinking in my early uh, 20s and and onward. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the next piece that we're going to listen to. This is uh, movement one of the double concerto for guitar and violin. Well, this is a kind of interesting um, middle point for me. It was um, uh, after, not long after I'd written my second string quartet, and I'd found that jazz influences were again coming to the forefront particularly because the piece was written for uh, not just Lerner Sonnenberg and for Sharon Isbin as a guitar and violin double concerto. And typically when I write pieces for, for artists, I get to know their playing and, and I watch them play in public, watch how they move, watch their, l- listen to their sound and take elements of that and, and try to incorporate pieces that would fit their personality well. So for Nadja, there's such a strongly... Even though the music isn't improvised, there's just every performance feels like it's recreated right there on stage in a very fresh, very personal and improvisatory way. So I chose to base the piece around elements of jazz and kind of quasi-improvisatory elements, even though it's all completely written out. But at the same time, this piece, this movement in particular, is very classically and very tightly structured because I wanted to present the violin and guitar as equals. And it's very difficult for acoustic guitar to be equal to a violin. I mean, it, the sound evaporates once you've played a note. There's no sustain, very, very little. Um, and so I had to find a way structurally to be, to present both of them separately and together as partners and as equals. So this is what I uh, came up with, this movement. Let's have a listen. This is Movement 1 of the Double Concerto by Aaron J. Kernis. We're going to hear Hugh Wolf lead the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and our soloists are Cho Liang Lin, violin, and Sharon Isman, guitar.
Movement one of the Double Concerto by composer Aaron J. Kernis. We heard guitarist Sharon Isbin alongside violinist Cho Leong Lin with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra conducted by Hugh Wolf. What a great example of uh, jazz influences, certainly, but a, but a lighter piece. As you said, something you composed after writing a darker or a more heavy piece. Right, right, very much. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. Today's guest is composer Aaron J. Kernis. For more information about the show, you can find us on Facebook or on our website, relevanttones.com. Let's turn now to one of the uh, one of your heavier works. In fact, really, uh, possibly one of your heaviest. This would be uh, Colored Field. Tell me about the inspiration for Colored Field. Uh, I, I know that you had uh, embarked upon a trip to Auschwitz, but was that did that inspire the piece, or did you go there looking for inspiration for this piece? Well, I took a trip to Poland in 1989, and at the end of my trip, my host strongly encouraged me that I must take a trip to Auschwitz and Birkenau. So I took a taxi, you know, a few hours and was deposited there and had a very, um, first a very numbing and then uh, a very numbing experience at Auschwitz. And then when I went to Birkenau, I actually had a, I don't want to go into great detail, but I kind of had a hallucinatory experience there. It was the spring and there were these dilapidated houses in the middle of a field and the wind was blowing and it was lovely and it was very difficult to initially make the relationship between what had occurred there and how time had passed. So in the middle of being there, I had this hallucination of the the earth just rising up in front of me and just rivers of blood in this place. And um, was this is not something I normally have. I have a very active visual imagination, but not often hallucinations in a specific place. So um, I filed that thought away, and of course I didn't quite know what to do with it. It was a very strong experience. And also around that time, the war in Bosnia was developing and intensifying. And war and a response to it became a very important uh, vital, central element to my work. And in fact, I wrote five or six pieces that relate to war, and most of them big, dark, serious pieces. So when I was asked to write an English horn concerto, I was already in my work developing the idea of a, either a melody or a soloist as a metaphor for the human voice and pitting that against the orchestra as this kind of steamroller of a machine or of something that could cover over the voice and annihilate this single frail human voice. The second movement, which you'll hear, the Pandora Dance, which is a very short piece, it's just a five-minute piece, I had the image of Pandora's box about evil trapped in this box and that evil escaping out of that box. And uh, it's kind of almost a dance of those elements. Let's have a listen then to Pandora Dance from Colored Field by Aaron J. Kernis. This is the San Francisco Symphony, Alistair Neal conducting, and Julianne Giacobassi, English horn soloist. Thank you. 
Wow, you can really hear the uh, the evil swirling around. What a fantastic piece, uh, almost a, a perpetual motion piece there. Pandora Dance from Colored Field by composer Aaron J. Kernis, performed by the San Francisco Symphony, Alistair Neal conducting, and that was Julianne Jacobassi on English horn. Well, let's move on now. We've been uh, kind of interspersing lighter works with heavier ones, and in that vein, we're going to move to two movements with bells composed for James Ennis, the violinist. What can you tell us about this piece? This is the most recent, I'd say, of major works of mine for violin. It was commissioned by the BBC Proms uh, in 2007. It was premiered over there with, uh, with James Ennis. And um, this piece was written like the Third Symphony after the death of my parents. And I was really looking at memories of growing up in my house with jazz in the background. And my father particularly loved ballads and jazz improvising. And there are bell elements that come into the piece from time to time. There's a repeated B, but it's very subtle. The use of of bell sounds is very subtle in this piece. It's just in the piano. And the jazz influence is in the background as well. It's kind of a memorial piece for, for my father. Also, this was an interesting development musically for me because I started to move away from very classical, very formalized structuring of of my pieces and began to follow my intuition again, much as I had when I was 17, but with all of this experience and knowledge since then that I've had. So the elements of improvisation come to the fore, even though, again, it's all written out, but the structure is much more fluid. There are elements of sonata form in this piece. There's a sense of return. There's a, There's a sense of return of slow music, return of faster, more active music, but it's just more more fluid, more plastic in mm. its form. We're going to have a listen to movement one of two movements with bells. This is James Ennis, violin, and Andrew Armstrong, piano.
an interesting exploration of range in the in the final moments of that piece. Movement one of Two Movements with Bells by Aaron J. Kernis, 
We heard violinist James Ennis and Andrew Armstrong on piano. What a fantastic piece. I think I can really hear what you're talking about with the return to an intuitive style of composing. Um, in many ways, I think that uh, it is a structured piece, obviously, but the um, the violin line, to me, the way that it unfolds, it almost has a, a sing-song or spoken quality to it. Mm -hmm. And then the piano mm -hmm. is very sparse in, in its contributions, almost mm -hmm. as if it yeah. doesn't want to step on the violin's part. Is that fair right. to say? Right. Well, they there are various parts where they have a lot of interplay, a lot of sense of partnership, and then other places where the piano is very much um, mm -hmm. in the background. Yeah. It does sound like the violin is singing in many places, yeah. like a human voice. Well, Lear, I have to say, I think one of the hallmarks of my voice is, is that lyricism that comes through. Sometimes it comes through by its absence, but it's almost always there. Mm -hmm. Well, Aaron, you have a lot of things going on here in town. Uh, you're here as part of the Nemers Prize of Northwestern University, a really fantastic prize that is not only a cash prize for the composer, but also involves a lot of interaction with the students. That's right. It's not an empty academic honor. and There no, actually is some, no, some work involved. I'll be working with performers over the time, working with various composers there, and getting to know the school a bit, mm -hmm. which will be very interesting. That's fantastic. And a uh, wonderful local clarinetist, John Bruce Yeh, will be performing with the Calder Quartet at the Winter Chamber Music Festival at Northwestern. This is in Pickstager Hall on January 20th. And do you know what, they're, what, they're, what are they playing of yours? Uh, it's a very new piece just premiered this summer called Perpetual Chicon. It's a 20-minute uh, single-movement piece that goes through a lot of... Uh, a lot of territory, a lot of different variations on material and sort of follows in the footsteps of uh, two movements with bells in terms of kind of finding my way intuitively, but also there being a, a very uh, strong few elements that it's all based upon. Mm -hmm. Well, again, that's in Pickstager Hall on January 20th as part of the Winter Chamber Festival at Northwestern University. We have just a little bit of time left in the program, and so I want to hear an excerpt of a piece, Too Hot Toccata. What can you tell us about this piece? Well, this is actually a transcription I made of the third movement of my double concerto, which which was part of which was played earlier. So it's a jazzy, very virtuosic piece. I turned it from focusing on two solo instruments to a, be a miniature concerto for orchestra. So you'll hear solos passing around from the oboe to the two bassoons to two horns to trumpet. Uh, to solo violin, so it's really a, a little exploration of the virtuosity of whatever orchestra is it's playing it and was originally transcribed for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Aaron, thank you again so much for being a guest on Relevant Tones today. It's been great to, uh, to talk to you. And thank you. Thank you. Let's have a listen to Carlos Kalmar conduct the Grand Park Orchestra in Two Hot Toccata by Aaron J. Kernis. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT. For more information about the program and the artists we featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grosvenor Capital Management, Carol Joins and Abby O'Neill, an anonymous donor, and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bosted, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>